In John chapter 19, verses 28 through 30, uh, God's word says this. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, Teleo, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So it's really interesting that we come off of Easter, come off of a time where we're celebrating resurrected life, uh, and what tends to happen in holidays, what tends to happen in our celebrations is that we, we kind of just go through the motions. We get into the system, into the season, and we just kind of go through things, and we forget sometimes what it is that we're celebrating, what it is that this season is all about. Adam prayed just before he ended worship and said that he wanted us to, uh, cried out to God and said, help us to remember this, help us to understand what it is. Aristotle once said that the unexamined life is not worth living, and a pastor that I uh, that I quote often once said that the unexamined holiday is not worth celebrating, <laughs> right? So the unexamined life is not worth living and the unexamined holiday is not worth celebrating. What happens with Resurrection Sunday, what happens with this idea of resurrected life is that we put it, oftentimes we put it into the future. We put it into a spiritual context. We put it into something that is largely intangible that we don't understand. And so what we do in our minds is we just kind of check the box. Yes, I believe in the resurrection, check, and then we go hunt for Easter eggs, right? That's, that's what we do on Easter Sunday. We just kind of accept this premise, and then we move on. And, and that's fine, I, I suppose, in some sense, because uh, there's a lot about the resurrection that is un, uh, it's, it's unable to be uh, comprehended, unable to be understood fully. Uh, most of us believe, rightly, that dead people stay dead. Did you know that? It's amazing. It's an amazing thing. It never changes in life. And then all of a sudden, Jesus comes on the scene, and he wrecks the world, raises Lazarus from the dead, and then three days later, he raises from the dead, and some days later, he ascends to the right hand of the Father. And we kind of put this all in our head, and we're like, what in the world are we supposed to do with this? Today, what I want to do is I want to not only accept that truth, that resurrection is something we are looking forward to in that great by and by or in that future sense. But I also want to show you the very real nature of the resurrection in this life. The very real nature of the resurrection for you here and now. And why I want to show you that is so that you have something to actually hold on to. How many of you believe a lot of things that the Bible says and you just go, I'm just taking it by faith, right? How many of you do that? It's, I'm just taking it by faith. That's, I'm just trusting that. That's fine. You're supposed to do that. But there are also things that the scripture says that we can take in the here and the now that we can live by. And it gives us, uh, it gives us uh, stronger faith. It gives us courage. It gives us hope for the future. Okay. And so we're going to talk today about what it is that Jesus actually accomplished uh, on the cross, what Jesus had said he accomplished before he gave up his spirit, what Jesus says in John 17 when he is praying to his heavenly father that he had accomplished all the work that he had accomplished and set out to do. 
We're going to talk about uh, what he did and one particular aspect that actually gives us hope here and now. Romans chapter 6, verses 8 through 11, shows us this kind of future tense as well as a present tense of resurrected life. The Apostle Paul says, Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him sometime in the future, right? We are going to live with him, but we're also living now. Amen? Now watch, we're going to see it. We also will live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. That's a huge hallelujah moment. Death no longer is master over him, for the death that he died, and I love this beautiful line, he died to sin, Jesus died a death to sin, and why? Or, or, and for who? Once for all. Why he did that was so that we would have life, okay? But he died a death to sin, and he died it once for all people. But the life that he lives, because he is alive, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And he will live with him someday. I love that. But again, that's a hard thing for us to wrap our minds around. We just check the box and kind of move about our business. But what we're talking about is a life where we live alive to God right now. Now, Romans chapter 8 goes even further. The Apostle Paul takes a, a, an amazing step in this, and he says, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Show of hands, how many of you are Christians? Come on, raise your hands real high. Show of hands, how many of you have the Spirit of God? Same people, <laughs> right? Right? You are not of the flesh, but of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to him. But you belong to him. So you have the Holy Spirit, beautiful truth. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin... Yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness, because God has declared you to be righteous. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, is that true of you? Yes? If the Spirit of Christ, uh, the Spirit who raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. You're going, it's, I'm already alive. Yes, yes, but you need life in a different way. You need life to live unto God, to be pure before him and to honor him through his spirit who dwells in you. Jesus has declared on the cross in John 19, he has declared this fascinating word, it is finished. It's a phrase that we put in the Bible. It's one word in the Greek, teleo, and it simply means uh, paid for or accomplished or completed. And everything Jesus did was completed, everything that Jesus was to do was completed in that moment. Now, you might look at that and say, yeah, but he hadn't raised from the dead yet, Nathan. He hadn't actually even died fully yet, Nathan. He hadn't sent the Holy Spirit yet, Nathan. But he had done all the things that were required for that to happen, right? So when he says, it is finished, Jesus understands something that modern theologians finally kind of caught up to, and that is this principle of the now and the not yet, right? Jesus was telling of something that he had done, he was doing, and he would do, 
right? It is finished. In every direction, time flows. That's how Jesus works, okay? And so he's accomplished something. And the one thing that I want you guys to see today that has everything to do with Jesus bleeding and dying for us, that has everything to do with what we celebrated last week, the one thing that I want you guys to see today is actually a new life here and now, a, a, a component of new life here and now that will truly, truly set you free. It will truly bring peace to each and every one of you. I guarantee it. Because I've never talked to a human being in all my life that doesn't struggle with what we're going to talk about today. Okay? When Jesus says it is finished, what I'm about to share with you is absolutely finished. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. Over the next couple of weeks, I'm going I'm to spend some time unpacking the, the details of Hebrews 9 because, uh, well, it's fun and I'm, I love being geeky about these things. But um, we're going to unpack these things. But today, I want you to see something that is just unbelievable, unbelievable when it comes to what Jesus has accomplished. Here's what Hebrews 9 starts with. Behind the second veil... There was a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies. Is that verse 1? It's the previous one to that, guys. Now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. The next slide. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat, or the place of atonement. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. The writer of Hebrews is simply telling you that we can't speak of these things in detail, not because he doesn't have time and not because he doesn't have parchment left to write the things out. He's saying we don't have the ability to speak of these things now because they're no longer here. You notice the writer of Hebrews addresses the tabernacle and not the temple. Why? Because every Jew in the world would have understood the tabernacle. They would have understood God's presence traveling with them throughout this, uh, throughout this Exodus mythology, right? This Exodus lore, this movement towards uh, what God was doing. And so it's a beautiful truth, right, that's going on. And so they're, they're familiar with this. So he talks about the tabernacle and not the temple. And all of these things have disappeared. By the time he's speaking, the Ark of the Covenant is gone. The tables, the incense, all of these pieces are, well, makeshift or different now at best. Aaron's staff that had budded is not present anymore, right? All of these things are gone. So he appeals to something that they knew. And the reason why he's appealing to that is simply to say, this idea that you are familiar with, I'm about to show you how Jesus steps in to this very situation. Okay, it is it's not necessarily about the details and we're going to go into that next week uh, about some of these details because there's some tricks to the words that are being used and there's some tricks to what they're describing and how it's being described. And and I I feel like it's important for us to understand it so that we can also be a people who answer the questions of skeptics, because there are a lot of things in this uh, in these first five verses that actually get played with by skeptics a lot. 
So the writer goes on and says, Now, when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. What we're about to see is actually a part of worship. It's a part of what we just did for 20 or so minutes, right? It's a part of worship. So he says, entering the tabernacle, performing the divine worship, but into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. That's a fascinating line right there. He is offering blood for the sins of people committed in ignorance. That's, that's weird, right? How many of you have committed a lot of sins in ignorance? How do you know? <laughs> I have no idea why you raised your hands, but I tricked you, and I did good on that one, right? You sin in ignorance. The truth is we absolutely do sin in ignorance, but if we're ignorant of it, we're, yeah, okay, moving on. But uh, the idea here is that we're all... We're all guilty of a lot of things, and God actually wants to cleanse us not only of the sins we know we do, but even of the sins that we don't know that we do. And the Bible is clear on this. There are many people throughout the Old Testament that, that cry out to God and say, Father, even cleanse us from those sins which we have done in ignorance. It really seems to indicate that people in the Old Testament uh, had at least a a bit more lofty view of holiness than we do, okay? We're like, hey, I did that one really bad thing, I'll confess that, or I did this really atrocious thing, I'll confess that, but these people were like, God, I want you to purify my heart. I want you to take everything out of me. If I've done anything even without knowing it, I want you to wash that clean, right? So, so he goes in, the, the high priest would go in, and he would only enter once per year, um, now, how that worked was really interesting. We'll talk about it next week. Not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of people committed in ignorance. So he offers blood for himself. Why? Because he's a human being and he's full of sin too. And probably sins which he committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing which is a symbol of the present time or for the present time. So again, the Holy Spirit signifying this. The way into the holy place has not been disclosed yet. We only have a, a high priest going in once a year, but there's something that is going to be disclosed about getting into this on a permanent basis, right? So we go on to the next verse. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshipers perfect in conscience. This is a really huge thing, and this is what we're going to talk about today. It cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Now, do you notice something here? Uh, what's really important is that the author of Hebrews does not downgrade animal sacrifice. As a matter of fact, you're not going to see that necessarily in the scripture either. Uh, Paul makes a mention of something that says if the law could make you righteous, what need would there be for a savior? But the writer of Hebrews doesn't shoot down this idea of animal sacrifice. Because what it was good for was this idea of ceremonial sanctification. 
We know sanctification under one term, which is a process unto Christ-likeness. But there is also very clear ceremonial sanctification, which is just a thing setting you apart. And so in uh, ancient Israel, if you were unclean, ceremonially unclean or what, you had to go through these rituals, and it put you back into this kind of community. You were set apart again as the people of God. Important little side note for any of you that love to study these things. Ceremonial uncleanliness was not always sin. It actually was largely not sin. A woman who was bleeding wasn't sin. A person who had leprosy, it wasn't sin, Right? Because there were certain things that happened, a woman having a child, and then there's a time of uncleanliness for a certain period of time, and they had to be clean. It wasn't sin. And so sometimes what we do is we read the Old Testament, we get this hyper-focus on sin, especially people from the Reformation, hyper-focus on sin, and everything becomes something we're doing bad. We're horrible, wretched, pitiful people, and God has to wash everything. There's just a lot of things that God said, listen, I just want you back in the community, and I want you doing it my way right? I want you to be ritually pure. And animal sacrifice was this way, okay? So he doesn't shoot this down, and I think that that's an important thing. We'll unpack it more. So he goes on and says, but when Christ appears as the high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. You know, that thing that the Holy Spirit hadn't disclosed yet? right? Now it is. The more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves. It's, it's not that way. That's not how you're set apart. He doesn't say, because that's just dumb, right? Look at what he says. But through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So Jesus has done this once for all. Remember that passage in Romans. He died to sin once for all, right? So Jesus enters this most holy place. goes on. It says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, he doesn't shoot it down. If that's the truth, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? What Jesus has come to do, what Jesus does in a much better way than anything that could cleanse your flesh, is that he cleanses the inside of you. Do you understand this? He doesn't just wash the outside of the cup. He's going to clean the inside of the cup. And then it's going to be used for holy purposes. You and I for set-apart purposes. To glorify God in everything we do. But there's something that hinders us from resurrection life in this life. There's something that hinders us. And that is a guilty conscience. That is the issue that absolutely everybody in this room struggles with. It is something that plagues you. It will always plague you unless you trust Jesus for what he has done. And until you believe deeply that the Spirit of God, who raised Jesus from the dead, has actually given life to your mortal body. He's given life to you, and here's how he gave life to you. He cleaned every part of you. He cleaned it all. Past 
present. He will clean the future, right? We're not going to take away the fact that God still uses your conscience now. We're not going to take away the fact that, you're, that you're, um, you still feel guilty for sins and that you should confess those sins. All of us do, right? But think about this. Think about this. If, if we're not cleansed of our conscience and the only thing that happens is the outside of the cup gets cleaned, if the only thing that happens is that we get forgiven for the sins that we've committed, but not the heart that made all of that possible, if that's, if that's the only thing that happens, what do we do with the fact that Christians keep sinning? What do we do with that? We just walk around and go, I guess we're still in the Old Testament. I guess we're just going to keep sinning and we just need washing repeatedly over and over and over for these things. That's not true. We don't need that repeated washing. We also, don't, uh, we also don't need someone to die for us multiple times. We know that Jesus died once for all in what he did on the cross. When Jesus said it is finished, he is literally telling you that everything you've done in your past is wiped away. Everything that you've done, all of those things which you drag around like baggage, everything that you have is gone. Is that freeing to you? It should be freeing to you. And if it's not freeing to you, there might be a little issue with you not knowing what in the world you did wrong. <laughs> right? But Jesus has washed your conscience clean. He's changed this whole system. He's made you absolutely new. And I'm going to share with you a passage in Romans here in a second that really hits home. But I'm going to go a bit further in Hebrews chapter 9. It's not going to be on the screen. I just want you to listen to what is happening. Jesus has cleansed our conscience, right, from dead works to serve the living God. Verse 15 goes on. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions, that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must be necessity, uh, of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never in force while the one who made it lives." This is why we actually refer to the Old and the New Covenants also as Old and New Testaments. Do you know what you do when somebody, uh, hopefully you do this before they pass away, but you, get, you write out a will and testament, right? A will and testament. And the idea of the will and testament is it is all the things that you're going to do with what you are or who you were after you pass away, okay? A testament. We have no kind of idea of that word today, and so we just say Old Testament, New Testament, and we're like, what is that? It was segments of the Bible. No, it was, it was a testament. It was something that was given, something that was promised, okay? And so uh, there was a death, and there was a testament that those things paid out. Verse 18 goes on. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled blood, uh, sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. Now, doesn't that sound familiar to you? This is the blood of the covenant in my name, Jesus at the Last Supper. 
And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And here's where this gets really fun for me. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these. Now, I don't know if we're tracking with this, but there's, there's copies somewhere. There's an original and there's a copy. Listen to what it says. But the heavenly things themselves were better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one. So which is the copy now? The physical is the copy of the spiritual. But into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Now look at verse 25. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Verse 26. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Remember there's an original and remember there's a copy. Remember the original's in heaven and the copy is what we see on earth. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, and this is fun for your, uh, for your study on your personal time, for salvation without reference to sin. This is a rescue, <laughs> right? Salvation that has nothing to do with sin. To those who eagerly await him. Why do I continue into that? Because I want you to understand that when Jesus cleanses your conscience, he does so through God's ordained system. But he did it in God's ordained system in the... In the Uh, original sense and not in the copy sense. What we see on this earth is an outflow of what takes place in the spiritual realm. Okay? Do you understand that? So, this is a really hard thing for us to wrap our minds around. When Jesus sheds his blood on the cross, we are given a physical representation of what he did in the Holy of Holies in front of his Father. Right? Do you see what I'm saying? The idea of what is taking place in Hebrews, or according to the writer of Hebrews, is that, um, is that Jesus is doing something on a scale that we have never before seen, and one that happens once, and it's done for all time. Not the shadow down here that has to repeat itself over and over, okay? Have you guys ever been walking down a kind of like a dark road, like dimly lit or whatever, and you see how far your shadow gets cast? You see how far your shadow shoots out in front of you sometimes, right? What arrives at your destination first, your shadow or you? The shadow, right? And see, here's what our problem is. We see the shadow before we see the truth. We saw the shadow, we saw the cross, we saw him die, And what we then see through the writer of Hebrews much later is him go, that's actually a copy. It's a copy of what took place once and done. And that to me is beautiful. Now here's why this should be beautiful to you. Jesus didn't cleanse your conscience through some human ritual. He cleansed your conscience before his Father in heaven. 
He cleansed your conscience not at the hands of Romans crucifying him. He didn't cleanse your conscience because Jews were mad at him. He cleansed your conscience because he chose to lay down his life for his people. To die once for all. And he died to sin so that you might have life. This is a very, 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 very big deal. All of the understanding, all of the details of it are going to be a little bit more complicated. And we'll talk about that as as we go forward. But what I need you to understand is that what he accomplished was a mediation between you and his father where he said everything that they've done, all of the dirtiness inside of them, I want to take it all away. And I'm going to. And I'm going to do it through perfect blood. I'm going to do it through my own. And when he does that, each one of us is made new. So Romans goes on, uh, the uh, Apostle Paul writes in Romans this infamous passage, we all know it, Romans 8, 1 and 2. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. But do you know what this really is all about? There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's not, guys, that you just have been declared free And that you have to live with the guilt of your past. It is a declaration that everything in your past is gone. It is gone. There is no condemnation. And I trust me when I say this. You can't find it under a rock either. You can't dig it up. You can't, no matter how much it takes, no matter how often it occurs that you go back to people from your past. And they want to bring it up and say, man, when we were younger, you were a dirtbag. They say this about Jerry all the time. But no matter how much they do, you knew I had to get that reference in there, right? No matter how much they do this, your conscience is clear. Your conscience is clean. And here's where I think it becomes even more beautiful. That when we sin, even as Christians, the scripture says to confess our sins and that God is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. You have this kind of, you have this ledger, right? And, and so we transfer numbers in a ledger and we're trying to keep track of our tallies and everything like this. But the way it works when we pray to God and we ask for forgiveness is that those things that are there get erased. It's not that they just get filed away in a different part so that God can one day just bring it back and laugh at you and say you foolish heathen, right? If you are trusting him, if you are putting your trust in King Jesus, it is gone. It is disappeared. And you have life. How many of you struggle with your conscience? How many of you struggle with your past? You have been set free. It's you, you don't have to keep it. You don't. And what I find fascinating is even when you keep it, God's going, it's good. It's gone. You're walking around carrying luggage that you have no business carrying. And see, this is where it ties into resurrected life here and now. If you keep carrying all that baggage, it's really hard to serve God, isn't it? really hard 
Because you look at yourself and you go, why? Why do it? I'm just going to screw it up again. I'm just going to disappoint my father. I'm just going to make everybody in my world mad. Tell me you don't say that to yourself. We, we carry this around. But resurrected life begins with the knowledge that you are free. Your sin is gone. You have life. And here's where I find it frustrating in the church. I find it frustrating when fellow Christians want to remind each other of their sin as if they didn't need freedom themselves, which is why Jesus says if you've been shown mercy, (laughs) you must show mercy, right? But I find it very frustrating when the people who are called to shepherd just heap more heavy burdens on you keeping you reminded of the worm you are. Give me a break. This is not helpful. Because if God has called me free, then I'm not a free worm. I'm just free, right? Isn't that awesome? If I once was not a son, but now I've been made a son, I'm a son, not a non-son that's free, right? That none of that makes sense, but, but here's what we do. We've got, this, we've got this agenda where we want people to make sure they take righteousness seriously. You know how you take righteousness the, the most serious? You know how you do it? Put your trust in Jesus. That's how you take it most seriously. It's not because of you. That'd be awesome, but it ain't happened yet, right? It ain't happened yet. But now that you're free, you are free indeed. You are absolutely free to live this life in resurrection right now before our Heavenly Father. So this is why the writer of Hebrews says that we have been set free from uh, uh, the conscience, right? This, this, we have had a cleansing of our conscience um, according to dead works. Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Attach it all together. He's washed your conscience clean, clean, specifically of the works that led to death, and he's given you the ability to live your life for King Jesus. Do you know that? So what I want to leave you with today is that when you hear the words, there is therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation. He set you free. And when you read the words in John chapter 19, and Jesus says, it is finished, your conscience was scrubbed. It's finished. Right? It's done. I know walking in that is going to be difficult. But let me also give you insight as to what Christian encouragement should also include. Sure, we should encourage each other towards good works. We should do that. That would be the contrast of bad works, right? Don't do this, do this, right? We should encourage each other towards this. But we should be constantly reminding each other that we are free, that we are alive, that we're not dead, that we're not orphans, but that we're children, that we're free, that we're friends of the living God. Amen? This is what we have to remind each other of, not because we want to correct the stupid teaching of the guy down the street, which is my fault most of the time, 
But instead, because we actually see the burden each other carry when we keep alive a a filthy conscience. You guys find living life to be challenging? Is it difficult? Raise your hands if you think living life is a little bit difficult. How much more difficult is it if you have to be leashed with everything you've ever done wrong in your life? It's impossible, right? We can't do it. God has set you free. He has set you free and he did so in the most amazing way possible. He entered the throne room of the living God and he paid everything that needed to be paid for you. So, celebration of Easter, we often just put it in this kind of ethereal future tense. It's some sort of spiritual thing. And then we check the box and say, yes, I believe in the resurrection. And we go hunt Easter eggs. From now on, (laughs) from now on. Hunt all the dang Easter eggs you want, rot your teeth, kill your children. Whatever it is going to do, right? Okay, it's fine. But listen to me. (laughs) You guys are like, he is so weird. Anyway, yes, you have no idea, right? Hunt all those Easter eggs. Do all the things that you want to do. But don't, don't, don't celebrate Easter as something that is untouchable, uh, intangible, right? Something that you don't, you can't relate to. Easter is something far more real, something far more practical for you right now. It's a washing of your conscience to live unto God's holiness. Amen.